Okay, we're going to start. Uh, my name's Scott Alderman. I'm the Administrative Director of the Program in Narrative Medicine. I want to welcome everybody to uh, Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, as always, we have some uh, food and drinks in the back. Uh, we also have some of our uh, speakers' books on sale in the back, and she'd be more than happy to sign them uh, when we're finished. I want to remind everybody that uh, next month, uh, in April, we'll have the graphic novelist uh, David Small. Uh, in May, we're going to have Jack Saul, who's at the Mailman School and one of the leading experts on uh, trauma studies. And uh, I think that's it for me. I'm going to introduce uh, Marsha Hurst. Marsha is on the faculty of the Narrative Medicine program and one of the founders of the Masters in Narrative Medicine. And uh, she is going to uh, um, introduce our speaker. Scott is much taller than I am. Okay, can you hear me? Welcome. Good afternoon. It's really a pleasure to be doing this, and um, I'm delighted that Nellie Herman was not able to introduce our guest um, and invited me to do that. Uh, so I want to actually begin um, by uh, with a quote from Michael Greenberg's uh, 2012 New York Times Review um, of Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Greenberg begins his review this way. In the vast and growing literature of affliction, there is essentially one story, how the writer and her loved ones made it through. There is little suspense. The existence of the memoir is testament to the fact that the author has lived to tell the tale. But what hard-won nugget of wisdom has she brought back from her brief descent into hell that for most of us, for now anyway, we are lucky enough to avoid? Can she give her ordeal meaning beyond the brute fact of the thing itself? Yes, Michael Greenberg, she can, and she has. Our presenter today, Susanna Cahalan, does indeed write what Arthur Frank would call a restitution narrative. But like most illness narratives, her story is much more complex. She begins with a harrowing and chaotic tale of physical decline and mental derangement. The chaos of her mind and body coincide with a period of sequential misdiagnoses ranging from mononucleosis through alcohol withdrawal to bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So first, this is a story of naming. The tension between labeling Cahalan's disease immunological, psychiatric, or neurological is not simply a turf battle, but governed the frame through which her condition was diagnosed and then treated. Suhel Najjar, Cahalan's neurologist, who first identified her disease as anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis, argues that the barrier between immunology, neurology, and psychiatry needs to be severed. Indeed, Cahalan leaves us wondering how many are suffering and have suffered because disciplinary barriers block the scope of professional vision. 
Her story also adds meaning and complexity to our frequently asked question, whose story is this? Cahitlin tells her own story, but it is a story largely constructed out of the stories of family, friends, physicians, medical records, and even video recordings routinely collected on the epilepsy floor. Cahitlin herself has almost no memory of the months she spent in the hospital. Her skills as a reporter, having not worked for 10 years at the New York Post, are put to work investigating what her brain was not able to recall. And her story also gives meaning to our questioning of endings. Stories require closure, even as we know that with serious illness there may be no closure. As Cahalan recovers from her disease, she is asked repeatedly, out of 100, what percentage do you feel like yourself? But what does that mean when the self has gone through such extreme changes, when the self is missing memory of self, and when, as Cahalan knows, there's a possibility of recurrence? There are many possible endings in Cahalan's story, but the one I like best, and I quote, is, how fragile our hold on sanity and health is, and with that realization comes an aching sense of vulnerability. The ending Cahalan herself chooses is the answer to her own quest for meaning. Quote, I, couldn't, I wouldn't take that terrible experience back for anything in the world, she writes. Too much light has come out of my darkness. Cahalan's story ends as an advocacy narrative, as those who suffer from anti-NMDA receptor, autoimmune encephalitis, and their physicians have come forth to learn and to benefit from her experience. Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 25 weeks, and the New York Post article on which it was based won for Susanna the Silurian <coughs> Award of Excellence. We are indeed fortunate to have Susanna Cahalan here to share and discuss her story. I want to thank, thank you so much for that incredible opening. I'm really blown away. Um, I'm going to start this a little bit um, in an unusual way for a kind of grand rounds. I want to establish first um, how unreliable of a narrator I am because you should not trust anything that I say um, going forward. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read to you two parts of the book, um, one that opens the book, um, starting with one of my few memories that I have during my, my month-long stay um, at NYU Medical Center. So I'm, I'm going to start with that, and then I'm going to read something much later um, in the story that kind of unwinds everything I just talked about. At first, there's this darkness and silence are my eyes open? Hello. I can't tell if I'm moving my mouth or if there's even anyone there to ask. It's too dark to see. I blink once, twice, three times. There is a dull foreboding in the pit of my stomach. That I recognize. My thoughts translate only slowly into language, as if emerging from a pot of molasses. Word by word, the questions come. Where am I? Why does my scalp itch? Where is everyone? Then the world around me comes gradually into view, beginning as a pinhole, its diameter steadily expanding. Objects emerge from the murk and sharpen into focus. 
After a moment, I recognize them. TV, curtain, bed. I know immediately that I need to get out of here. I lurch forward, but something snaps against me. My fingers find a thick mesh vest at my waist, holding me to the bed like a, what's the word? A straitjacket. The, the vest connects the two cold metal side rails. I wrap my hands around the rails and pull up, but again the straps dig into my chest, yielding only a few inches. There's an unopened window to my right that looks out to the street. Cars, yellow cars, taxis, I'm home, I'm in New York. Before the relief finishes washing over me though, I see her, the purple lady. She is staring at me. Help, I shout. Her expression never changes, as if I hadn't said a thing. I shove myself against the straps again. Don't you go doing that, she croons in a familiar Jamaican accent. Sybil, I ask, but it couldn't be. Sybil was my childhood babysitter. I hadn't seen her since I was a child. Why would she choose today to re-enter my life? Sybil, where am I, I ask her. The hospital, you better calm down. It hurts. The purple lady moves closer, her breasts brushing up against my face as she bends across me to unhook the restraints, starting on the right and moving to the left. With my arms free, I instinctually raise my right hand to scratch my head, but instead of hair and scalp, I find a cotton hat. I rip it off, suddenly angry, and raise both hands to inspect my head further. I feel rows and rows of plastic wires. I pluck one out, which makes my scalp sting and lower to eye level. It's pink. On my wrist is an orange plastic band. I squint, unable to focus on the words, but after a few seconds, the block letters sharpen. Light risk. This is kind of a, I didn't realize at the time when I was writing it, but it's kind of a metaphor for the process of writing this book because I remember so few things um, and, and I'm kind of grappling around in darkness trying to put this all together. So I'm going to read to you, this is towards the end of the book, um, and, I, and I want you to keep in mind the flight wristband. So that's something I remember with absolute certainty. I mean, that is a fact to me. So I, so I, rem you know, I, I remember this, this experience very vividly. And I vividly remember looking down at my right hand and seeing an orange, orange band that's, that read flight risk. My family and my friends also remember it. So I took this for granted as a truth. The flight wristband to me was absolute fact. Yet it turns out it was imaginary. When I spoke to nurses and doctors on my floor, they told me that those bands don't exist. One nurse suggested, you probably had a fall risk band and it wasn't orange, it was yellow. My EEG tapes, I have tapes of me during my hospital stay, confirm this. There is no such thing as an orange flight wristband. So this was pretty unnerving um, while writing the book because I realized, okay, even the, the kind of the, the minute things I do remember and I remember you know, very vividly, I can't even rely on that. So that, would, that made writing this book very difficult um, and, and an exercise really more in reporting rather than memoir uh, in my experience. So now that I've established that you shouldn't trust me, I'm going to walk you through what I believed happened to me. So this, um, just to give you some context, this all happened in 2009. I was 24. I had just been hired on as a full-time reporter at the New York Post, just had graduated college, living on my own for the first time, new relationship. You know, I had this kind of new life in New York City, very exciting. 
and you know, it's the post. It's like one day you're covering Alec Baldwin freaking out, and the next day you're at a jailhouse. You know, you don't know your life is in such flux that I think it took longer for me to realize that something was going on internally, something was wrong actually with me, not with my environment. So I remember that the first kind of moment, now looking back, not at the time, but looking back, that I can kind of trace the beginnings of, of something, something going on, something different, was when I thought I had bed bugs. So it was 2009, and I think everyone in this room probably feared bed bugs at some point because they were very scary. And I had two bites on my arm and became fixated on those bites to a degree that is very much outside of my normal personality. Uh, I'm not prone to that, really. I, I'm more laid back than that. But I became fixated on these two bites. I called in an exterminator. The exterminator told me, you don't need to get it. You don't, I don't think you have it. You don't need to do it. I insisted he didn't do it anyway. I, that's all I could think about. My dreams were filled with bed bugs. But you know, that didn't send me rushing to a hospital you know, or a doctor. That, that wasn't really it. What, what started to scare me was um, one moment in my boyfriend's house, which I'm going to read um, a little bit here. Um, so he had got, he'd left me alone in his apartment. And I took that as an opportunity to start rifling through his private things. And again, I really don't think that's part of my normal personality. I hope it isn't. But um, I, I really was fixated on finding as evidence of, I don't know what, really, what I was looking for, but I wanted to just, I wanted to scavenge everything. So then, as I reached for a letter, he had saved all these letters from when he was a kid, I caught sight of myself in the mirror of the armoire, clutching Stephen's private love letters between my thighs. A stranger stared back from my reflection. My hair was wild and my face distorted and unfamiliar. I never act like this, I thought, disgusted. What is wrong with me? I have never in my life snooped through a boyfriend's things. I ran to his bed and opened my cell phone. I had lost two hours. It felt like five minutes. Moments later, the migraine returned. I began having migraines during this time too. As did a feeling of nausea. It was then that I first noticed my left hand felt funny, like an extreme case of pins and needles. I clenched and unclenched my hand, trying to stop the tingling, but it got worse. I raced the dresser to put away his things, but he wouldn't notice my pilfering, trying to ignore the uncomfortable tingling sensation. Soon, though, my left hand went completely numb. That, for me, was scary. That was physical. You know, we got the idea of kind of emotional versus physical, that, that sent me to a doctor. Um, and uh, a doctor was very worried by one-sided numbness and did a series of MRIs. And the MRIs came back clean with actually a slightly enlarged lymph nodes in my spine, which showed him that I probably was suffering from some kind of virus. He thought mono. That, that was my first diagnosis. So I thought, okay, I have mono. This makes sense. I had been lethargic. I had trouble concentrating at work. I was bungling interviews. At one point, I noticed that I couldn't actually follow. When someone was speaking to me, I couldn't translate it to words. So I, I could hear, I could hear what they were saying, and I could interact, but I couldn't write down what they were saying. So I was noticing that was happening, and that was confusing um, and, and, and very troubling. But what happened next, what really startled me, um, and, and um, basically set in motion, what, you know, a significant personality change that would occur during this time. So 
I bungled another interview, and I was very, very worried about losing my job at this point, and, and I had stopped sleeping, and I thought it was anxiety relating, related to that. And I, I was heading from my apartment, I was living in Hell's Kitchen at the time, to, through Times Square to my office. And I'd done this so many times before, but today, once I hit the rows of billboards at its center, I was accosted by its garish colors. I tried to look away, to shield myself from shockwaves of pigment, but I couldn't. The bright blue wedge of an eclipse gum sign emitted electric swirls of aqua and made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I could feel the colors vibrating in my toes. There seemed to be something exquisite about the rush. It was, it was kind of an exciting feeling, but the thrill only lasted a moment when to my left the moving scroll of welcomes you to Times Square caught my attention and made me want to wretch in the middle of the street. M&Ms on an animated billboard pirouetted before me, forging a massive migraine in my temples. Helpless in the faceless onslaught, I covered my eyes with mittenless hands, stumbling up 48th Street as if I had gotten off a death-defying roller coaster, until I hit the newsroom, where the lights still felt bright, but less aggressive. And there I started talking to my coworkers, saying things like, I think, I think I'm going crazy. I, this is how a crazy person acts. That's how I felt. I didn't understand what was going on. And I, I had these, at this point after this walk, when I returned to the newsroom, my mood was fluctuating so fast I couldn't even keep up with it. I was, I was just, it's victim. At one, you know, one moment I would, I'd cry hysterically, just with, you know, the worst feeling in the world. And moments later, I'd feel the happiest that I ever felt. And I had no clue as to what was making me feel this way. I tried, I tried, I thought of so many things. Maybe it's the job, maybe it's this new boyfriend, maybe it's living in New York City. I tried to make sense of what my emotions were making me feel. I, but I had, I just, I was completely out of control and I had no explanation for it, which was really very frightening. And then, I want to kind of write, the, I want to I read this here about how it feels to that kind of extreme feeling of mania, which is what I was going through this time. The tears continued down my face, but I was surprised to realize that instantly I was no longer sad. I was fine, not fine, happy. No, not happy, sublime, better than I have felt my entire life. The tears kept coming, but now I was laughing. A pulse of warmth shut up my spine. I wanted to dance or sing something, anything, except sit here and wallow in imaginary misery. I ran to the bathroom to splash some water on my face. As the cold water flowed, the bathroom stalls suddenly looked alien to me. How was it that civilization had gotten so far, but we still defecated in such close proximity to one another? I looked at the stalls, and hearing the flushing of toilets, I could not believe that I had ever used one before. I would find out later that that's the opposite of deja vu, the jamais vu, and it actually precedes a seizure, which I would have later. So I, if you can imagine this kind of spectacle I'm making myself in the middle of a newsroom, I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm dancing around, no one quite knows what's going on, you know, whisperings of you know, a breakdown, one of my editors recognized kind of, one of his former employees began coming into work wearing really inappropriate garish clothing and makeup, and she was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, and, he, and my behavior really reminded him of that. So I, I, everyone was kind of worried, very significantly worried. And that night, I went home, and this is here, is kind of the mark in the line where I stopped remembering, where memory is just not there anymore, and I had to really rely on other people to, to put together the story. 
So I'm just going to read this, this kind of mark here. So my boyfriend was the one who witnessed this, and I don't remember a thing about this, so he, this is all from his perspective. I had woken him up with a strange series of low moans resonating among the sounds from the TV. At first, he thought I was grinding my teeth, but when the grinding noises became a high-pitched squeak, like sandpaper rubbed against metal, he knew something was wrong. He thought maybe I was having trouble sleeping. When he turned to face me, I was sitting upright, my eyes wide open, dilated, but unseeing. Hey, what's wrong, he asked. No response. When he suggested I try to relax, I turned to face him, staring past him like I was possessed. My arms suddenly whipped straight out in front of me, like a mummy, as my eyes rolled back and my body stiffened. I was gasping for air. My body continued to stiffen as I inhaled repeatedly with no exhale. Blood and foam began to spurt out of my mouth through clenched teeth. Terrified, Stephen stifled the panicked cry, and for a second he stared frozen at my shaking body. Finally, he jumped into action. Though he'd never seen a seizure before, he knew what to do. He laid me down, moving my head to the side so that I wouldn't choke, and raced for his phone to dial 911. I would never regain any memories of the seizure or the ones to come. This moment, my first serious blackout, marked the line between sanity and insanity. Though I would have moments of lucidity over the coming weeks, I would never again be the same person. This was the start of the dark period of my illness, as I began an existence in a purgatory between the real world and a cloudy, fictitious realm made up of hallucinations and paranoia. From this point on, I would increasingly be forced to rely on outside sources to piece together this lost time. So from here, I spent a week at my mother's house, continuing to have seizures and, and continuing to act even, even more bizarrely. And, and begin getting, my, my paranoia had begun to ratchet up in intensity. I began to see things that weren't there. You know, and my mom was noticing all these things and very scared. So we, she ushered me back to the same doctor who said I had mono. And this time, armed with a list of all these new symptoms, you know, something is going on here, and clearly. And he, you know, he called me into his office, very successful, very respected neurologist in New York City, um, one who's probably very much overworked, called me into his office, gave me about five minutes of his time, and concluded there that I was suffering from alcohol withdrawal. And I later learned um, that he had, there was a mistake in the record that he had on me. He asked me, how, much, how many glasses of wine do you drink a night? You know, how much do you drink a night? And I said, about two glasses of wine a night. When I got my medical records, which helped me, guided me through the process of writing this book, he had written down two bottles of wine a night, which is a very different thing. Still, you know, not to discount other things, but um, he had very much put me in, he had stereotyped me, and he decided, he didn't understand what was going on, so he had made a diagnosis based on very limited data. But from there, still getting worse and worse. You know, the final straw came one night at my father's house when I, my hallucinations became delusions and I believed that my father had killed my stepmother. And it's not just believed, thought that, I heard it. I heard it clear as day. I heard it as clearly as I saw that flight wristband. And I remember hearing him punch and, and kick her upstairs. And I, I was so frightened, I barricaded myself in a bathroom, in the bathroom. And I thought for a, a brief moment about jumping out of the window to escape him. But thankfully, my stepmother keeps a Buddha statue 
by, by the sink, and the Buddha statue smiled at me. So I decided I'm not going to jump out of the window. So this is, this is the scene. I, it, you know, this is what's going on at this point. And this was the final straw for my mother, because clearly I was just unsafe um, for other people around me and for myself. And so she finally went back to that same neurologist, brandishing this kind of extended list of symptoms and insisting that I get hospitalized immediately. And she was adamant then that it, it would not be in a psychiatric hospital or it would, it would, that it be on an epilepsy floor, because I was still having seizures. So my doctor agreed after ample prodding to call NYU and see if there was a bed available. We went straight to NYU and there I had a seizure in the waiting area, which is quite possibly the best place in the world to have a seizure. Uh, and got straight up on the AMU room, which is a four person room that I shared the next four days um, with. Those poor people I think about. I, I actually had not been able to track them down, but I have no idea what they thought of me. I want to read a little bit here um, about my experiences in the hospital. So a lot of after that seizure and the month in the hospital, I really start, began to rely on other people. However, I still retained memories of my hallucinations. And I'm 99% sure they are not false memories because I couldn't communicate what I was feeling with anyone at that time. So they were solely my own. They weren't things that people told me I said or people recounting how I was acting. They are things that are in my own mind. So I'm 99% sure these are real. But again, I'm an unreliable narrator, so you should not trust me. So I'm going to read to you just a little bit of my experience in the hospital here. So about two days in, I was at the height of my psychosis. So the way this disease pre presents itself is it starts with a period of lethargy, you're tired, maybe a fever, which is prodromal symptoms, which is what I talked about earlier. Then sometimes kind of some, some other neurological symptoms like numbness can occur during that time. Then there seems to be a break. And then at that point, psychiatric presentation become, presents itself. And it's very robust. So that many other neurological symptoms, such as tachycardia, increased heart rate, those things are kind of ignored because the psychiatric presentation is so extreme. So I'm going to read to you just um, one of my interactions from the doctor's perspective and then from what I remember, which are two very different things. So when she came in the room, this is a, this is a psychiatrist at uh, NYU. She came into the room and, and I announced, unprompted, I have multiple personality disorder. Dr. Khan nodded patiently. I had picked one of the most controversial diagnoses in the field of psychiatry. Now called disassociative identity disorder, it is a condition where a person exhibits several distinct and entirely separate identities to the point that the patient is often unaware of the other selves. Some doctors believe it exists, others do not, especially in light of news that its poster child, Sybil, was perhaps a fraud. Many patients conflate DID with other types of mental illnesses like schizophrenia. In any case, I was clearly confused. Have you been diagnosed by any psychiatrist or psychologist in the past, she asked gently. And this one, is, as an aside, I have all of this in the medical record, and I've interviewed her as well, but it's a really interesting medical record to read. I have to say, I had some perverse pleasure in reading this one. So she said, I said, yes, the psychiatrist said I had bipolar disorder, which is true, um, or partially true. Prior to this hospital admission, I had gone to a psychiatrist because I was convinced that I was suffering from bipolar disorder. And actually, when she confirmed that by giving me antipsychotics, I felt so relieved to have a name 
for what was bothering me. And I remember just feeling like I, I belong to an exclusive club of creatives. I'm a creative person. You know, this makes so much sense. And I just remember the amazing sense of belonging. I did, it, it, there wasn't a mystery there. But unfortunately, that, that was not the, the diagnosis. Um, so she said, and were you taking any medication for that? I said, I refuse to take it. I spit it out. Then I said, I need out of here. I don't belong here. I belong in a psychiatric ward. I belong in Bellevue. I don't be it's not safe for me here. Why is it not safe for you here, she asked. Everyone is talking about me. They're all talking about me and making fun of me behind my back. I belong in Bellevue where they can take care of my disorder. I don't know why I'm here. I can hear what the nurses are saying about me. I can hear their thoughts, and they aren't saying nice things. Dr. Khan wrote down, paranoid ideation. You can hear their thoughts, she repeated. Yes, the whole world is making fun of me. What else can you hear, she asked. The people on the TV are talking about me, too. Dr. Khan wrote down ideas of reference, or you know, the belief that a patient, newspaper, articles, or songs should refer directly to him. Do you have any history of family members with mental illness, she asked. I don't know. My grandmother might have had bipolar disorder. She, she actually did not. But they're all crazy, I laughed, which was not helping my case at all. Then I turned on her. You know I have the right to sign myself out, right? I can walk out of here. I can't legally be held here against my will. I don't want to talk anymore. Dr. Khan wrote down her differential diagnoses, which included mood disorder, not otherwise specified, and psychotic disorder, not otherwise specified. She was concerned that, in light of the seizures, they should be looking for neurological causes. If there was no underly underlying disease that could explain my sudden psychosis, she suggested bipolar 1 as a possible explanation. And bipolar 1 is a mood disorder characterized by manic or mixed episodes. So this is what I remember from this. I don't remember any of these specifics. I don't remember the line about Bellevue. This was all taken from the medical record. What I remember is this. I remember her skin was so smooth. I remember staring at her cheekbones and pretty olive skin. I remember staring at her so hard that her face began to swirl before me and wrinkles formed on her face, and then around her eyes, and then around her mouth, and her cheeks. And her, her cheeks start to sink in and her teeth turn yellow. Her eyes begin to droop and her lips lose their shape. The striking young doctor ages right before my eyes. I have a gift. I can age people with my mind. This is who I am, and they cannot take this away from me. I am powerful, stronger than I've ever been in my life. I think that this was the closest I got to hyper-religiosity, um, which, which can happen with this disease. I didn't have um, feelings that I was kind of, you know, Christ coming back, but I've, I've talked to many people who've had this disease, and if you've had a religious upbringing, a lot, of the a lot of the time those kind of delusions start to peek its way into your hallucinations, and I wasn't raised that way. So I think that's why my delusions all have to do with the media, and that kind of paranoia. So I, 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 but I think this is the closest. I mean, I really felt that I had a gift, and I should share it with the world, and I was special. And, and that was probably the only positive hallucination that I had during that time. Everything else was terrifying. Um, and um, just I, I felt an extreme case of a persecution complex, almost, almost nonstop during the first five days in the hospital. I felt everything was sinister. Everything was out to get me. Um, this was the only time I kind of had a respite from that, but it was, a, it, it was an uneasy respite, really. So I want to talk a little bit about how I constructed some of these. And I, I talked a little bit about using the medical record with Dr. Khan and then using my own perspective on that chapter. And 
luckily I had a lot of avenues um, and a lot of help and a lot of places that I could kind of pull from. So I'm going to read one chapter that pulls from the doctors that I spoke to, my family, um, who they were there all the time, and so I think they were wonderful, though they had, they had a lot of false memories too, which I had to kind of learn how to navigate. Um, also, I had EEG videos of myself during that time too, which were very helpful for me personally because it's one thing hearing about yourself. It's one thing hearing that you were so impaired that you couldn't even sit, you know, grab a cup of water and sip it yourself. But it's another thing seeing yourself go through that. I mean, it, 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 the actual visuals helped me understand what my family really went through and how, how severe the illness became at its height. But prior to that, um, I have EEG video of myself hallucinating, and, it's, and I remember what the hallucination was about. In the video, I, am, I have a cell phone in my hand, and then I switch, and I have the remote control to the TV, and I'm talking into the remote control to the TV. And I know what I'm seeing and hearing. I'm hearing my father, I'm seeing my father on the news because he had killed my stepmother. I mean, this delusion followed me into the hospital. And on the video, you can see, you can see me say, you have to take this away from me. I, I hand my cell phone to, to the nurse. I say, I'm on the news, I'm on the news. And I remember, I remember a sea of paparazzi. I remember my father being, you know, handcuffed. I remember, you know, the newscasters. And I felt that all of the other patients in my room were actually undercover reporters trying to spy on me. And I felt the same thing about the nurses too. So I trusted no one um, at this point. Um, but what happens with, with this disease, and, and my case was, was acute in this way um, of, the, of this, uh, the psychiatric presentation. So you start with the prodromal, then you go to the psychiatric presentation, then you go to the catatonic stage of the illness. And at that point, I was moved out of the four-person AMU room. As my psychosis was getting worse, they realized maybe having her in a room with three other people isn't a good idea. So I got a private room. But once I was moved to the private room, my psychosis almost completely stopped. But I wasn't communicating. I was using, you know, one-syllable words, yes, no, grunting. Um, I had to use a sippy cup because I couldn't swallow liquids. My tongue had become too big for my mouth. I, I lisped, I slurred, I drooled. It was very fast descent. And I, I just want to read a little bit from my parents' perspective on that because that was hard for them. Because it's one thing to see okay, she's, she's psychotic and we don't know why, but it's very scary to see progress in the wrong direction, right? It's getting worse and, and there's no sign of what's happening. So at this point, they, have, they, have done, they had done almost every blood test you can imagine. Everything was coming back clean, MRIs, CT scans. On paper, I'm healthy. Uh, on paper, I'm a healthy person, but in, you know, in person, I'm clearly suffering from something. So I'm just gonna read a little bit about this. This scared her more than the hallucinations and the paranoia or the escape attempts. I had tried to escape now five times from the hospital, kicked and punched nurses. I was a terrible patient, understatement of the year. But this was a measurable, consistent change, but in the decidedly wrong direction. My tongue twisted when I spoke. I drooled, and when I was tired, my tongue had to hang out of the side of my mouth like an overheated dog. I spoke in garbled sentences. I coughed when I drank those liquids. 
I, I, saw, I also stopped speaking in full sentences, moving from unintelligible ramblings to monosyllables and sometimes just grunts. When my doctors would ask me to, to mimic the sound of ka, 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 I could only go I couldn't even make the sound of that hard C. So this was very troubling, and the doctors now were moving, they had moved away from the bipolar diagnosis, moved towards schizoaffective di diagnosis, which is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar features, and that wasn't making much sense either because what are these, you know, catatonia can be, you can have catatonic types of schizophrenia, but there was something that didn't make sense. It just didn't feel right is what, the, what some of the doctors were telling me then. It just didn't feel right. Something was wrong about this presentation. Of course, now you'd say, oh, the seizure should be the obvious. There's something wrong. But I actually never had a seizure on an, e on an EEG, so it was never captured. So the possibility that maybe I was having pseudo-seizures, there was never confirmation of those seizures. So there were still questions, and there were very little answers. And at that point, my doctor, um, Dr. Sulejar, entered the case. And he's um, born in Syria. Um, he had a really interesting childhood. When he was about 10 years old, he was kicked out of his private um, Catholic school for being too slow. And actually, a, uh, one of his teachers actually pulled aside his parents and said, he should learn a trade. School is not for him. So that was his history. And I think because of that, he was so adamant about taking a very detailed patient history. He would fill three pages of handwritten notes when he would come, and, come to see me. And it was the first time when he came that, you know, three weeks into the hospital stay, that someone had written down bed bug, the bed bug scare, the numbness, heart rate fluctuations, the seizures, all of a sudden they were all in one package as opposed to kind of piecemeal from doctor to doctor. He had kind of seen that big picture. So uh, this is, you know, this point is something that when he came that day, I have absolutely no memory of him during that time. I don't, I don't remember anything about that about that visit, the visit that would save my life. But I'm just going to read just a little bit, because I really want to hear questions from you too, and I think I'm, I'm running a little bit out of time, I'm rambling a little bit, but I really, like, really want to hear from you. So, But I'm just gonna read this one thing and then open it up. But So Dr. Najjar handed me a blank sheet of paper that he had ripped out of his notebook and said, would you draw a clock for me and fill in the numbers one through 12. I looked up at him with confusion. As you remember, Susanna, it does not have to be perfect. I looked at the doctor and then back down at the page. I held the pen, pen loosely in my right hand as if it were a foreign object. I first drew a circle, but it was lopsided and the lines were too squiggly. I asked for another sheet. He tore another one out for me and I tried it again. This time a circle took shape. Now draw the numbers on the clock, he said. I hesitated. He could see me straining to remember what a clock face looked like. I hunched over the paper and began to write. Methodically, I wrote the numbers. Often, I would get stuck on a number and draw it several times for separative dysgraphia. After a moment, Dr. Najjar looked down at the page and nearly applauded. I had squished all the numbers, 1 through 12, onto the right-hand side of the clock. It was a perfect specimen, with the 12 o'clock landing almost exactly where the 6 o'clock should have been. So for him, this was a clue that there was something clearly wrong with my brain in that neurological sense that we were talking about before and that the right-hand side of my brain was impaired, responsible for the left, left field division. He didn't know what was causing this impairment, but he knew this was not a psychiatric condition. Um, from there, he ordered up a brain biopsy, which showed evidence of inflammation, 
and then sent my spinal fluid to the one place in the world at the time that tested for this disease. The disease itself was discovered in 2007, now this is 2009. Uh, about a week later, he got the test results back and it came back positive for anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. And I was the 217th person to be given that diagnosis. Um, now, there are thousands of people, I mean, well into probably tens of thousands now, if you take into account all of autoimmune, all the encephalotides that are out there now. So since the discovery in 2007, just to give you a kind of overview of the disease really quickly, so there originally they chronicled 12 women who had, all, all presented with the same kind of disease, it was a 2005 paper originally, and they all had what's called teratomas, which are kind of cysts in the ovaries. Um, sometimes they have teeth and hair and brain mass, all these women had antibodies that were reacting against the NMDA receptor in the brain. Now the NMDA receptor is a vital receptor in the brain. It's, it's located all over the brain, but in high concentrations in the frontal lobes, in the hippocampus, hence behavior and memory. Um, and so uh, when he identified this, he also noted that like many autoimmune diseases, if you blast it with steroids, and immune therapies like, like IVIG and plasmapheresis, there seems to be a remarkable recovery rate. Flash forward to 2013, this was now four years after my diagnosis. He, oh, Dr. Dalmel, who originally discovered or named this disease, issued, wrote a paper that chronicled 600 patients now, from 12 years before. And now we have a kind of understanding of the disease. About 70% have seizures, not everyone has seizures, a good majority, about 80% or maybe more, have psychiatric presentation. And there are studies now that, that are looking into people who just present with psychiatric presentation without the neurological presentation, which is very exciting aspect of this. Um, of the 600 people with proper intervention, 81% can recover. Now, he used the word recover fully, and I think that that's a difficult thing to say because you know, we talk about out of 100, how do you feel? When you get to 95, 96, 97, when you get to 99, even 1% loss of yourself. It's so hard to gauge that, but it's a difference. And it doesn't change your life. It's not gonna impair you in a way that's gonna change the course of your life where you have to, you know, find a new job or you, you know. But that 1% is important. And I think that that's probably, that's definitely not captured that 81%, but it's still an exciting number given how devastated this disease is at its height. I mean, I've talked to many people now because, you know, because of this book, I, I, I'm sought out by people who, who get these diagnoses, and there are people who are in coma for six months or even longer who get out and who, who come back and recover fully to their sense of fully, you know, I mean, the idea of maybe 95% or 96, but back to the lives they led before. So it's really an exciting disease, and I mean, it's a strange way to put it, because I had it, but it is, it's exciting, and it was exciting to research, and exciting to be a part of, and it's very, it just, it's, it's incredible um, to me, and it was incredible to my nurse, the nursing, nursing staff, nursing staff, when I returned to the hospital and came back, you know, they were shocked, because they, you know, being on the epilepsy floor and in neurology, how often does that happen? that someone who is so devastated, who can't feed themselves, comes back on their own to the floor, you know, to say thank you. It, it's, it was, it's, an, it's an amazingly 
it's just an incredible, it's been an incredible experience and it is an incredible disease. Um, but I want to open it up to questions because I kind of went over, you know, very fast, but there are probably specific, you know, hopefully you have specific questions because this is my favorite part of, of doing these things, so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, it, oh, sorry, yes, the recovery process. She's asking how that went and, and what I did. So so it took me, you know, I, I kind of, do, I, I, I map it out in terms of kind of the, the road, like in a road map. So I was diagnosed in April of 2009. I started writing again. When I left the hospital, I could not write. So I started writing again in June. I'm talking writing in a journal, not writing, writing. Um, my journal, if you, I have those and, and, and they're very simple. It rained today, you know, very straightforward. So that was in June of 2009, late June I started writing again. And then I went back to work in September of 2009, which honestly was too soon, but I really, I was, I was for lack of a better word, pig-headed about it. I mean, I didn't want anyone to tell me I was impaired. I wanted to move forward. And it didn't matter if I couldn't actually type fast enough to keep up with interviews. I had to record all my interviews. I had trouble following things. And you know, the paper was so nice to me. I mean, they, they gave me probably the easiest stories to do. They're like, you do the hottest bartender New York story. I'm like, you can handle that. So that's what I did. But, but from there, it took me, I'd say, another year, year and a half to be fully kind of back. And I think, well, maybe it's still, I'm still getting better. I don't know, because at every stage of this, I was insistent that I was back to 100%. And that was something that was drilled into me, that idea of what percentage, and I'd always say 100%. But you know, looking back, you realize, oh no, but I wasn't. So I'm thinking, well, I, am I still recovering now? You know, am I still in that process? But in terms of what I actually did for recovery, I'm actually very disappointed in myself. So because of how stubborn I was, uh, I didn't do any of the occupational uh, speech or any of the therapy that I was supposed to do. Um, and I, you know, at that point, the disease was not very well understood, so I kept thinking, like, she's okay, you know, I, I, she's, she kind of survived this, like, we'll let her be. And at that point, I was, it was estimated that I'd get 80% back of my cognitive abilities. So no one kind of pushed me to do it, and I didn't want to. I didn't want evidence of, of how far I was from the person before. But what I did do was I started studying for the GRE because I had this idea that I, I don't know, but I think it was my brain's way of saying, you need, you need to work, you need to do something. And, and so I did, I, I, got, I had a tutor, I had the books, and for whatever reason, I, 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 that's what I did. And so I think that was actually very effective. And I think that was my occupational cognitive therapy, though I wish I would have actually done it. And I tell anyone who's gone through this, or you know, who knows someone who's gone through it, is to do everything you possibly can in the window that you have. And it was, and it was stupid, and I hate now that if I'm an example, I hope, People don't follow me in that, you know, because it was very dumb. Anyway, yeah. Any questions? Um, how did you back I didn't hear the last part, I'm sorry. That 
How much, if, I, if I'm repeating you, so how much of the writing of the book contributed to my feeling of 100% being back to 100%? I think it had a lot to do with it. I really do. Um, I think, in a way, if I questioned, I said, well, I could do, I did this, you know? And I also think going through it, I think reliving it, well, living, really living it for the first time and understanding it and understanding the science, that for me was so empowering get a handle on that, to be able to say, I know, you know, I didn't know what a receptor was before this, and now I understand what an NMDA receptor is, you know? And that, to me, like, I, all of a sudden I had ownership over this thing that happened to me, and kind of putting it down on paper, it became my story instead of something that happened to me, and I think emotionally, it was really important to moving on, you know, putting it down on paper, and then also I think, I think the, the challenge of doing it, too, I think was also kind of a little bit of occupational therapy, too, because you, I mean, it's not easy to write a book. Um, but I think the, the combination of the uh, undeniable, yeah, I think it had a, a huge impact on my feeling now that I'm, I've returned, or not returned, I'm a different person than I was before, but that I'm, I don't know, I'm different, but, I'm, but I feel good about it. I feel good about my difference as opposed to feeling bad about it. Any other questions? Were your pains any different after this? That's a great question. Actually, yes, they were. Um, I, right when I was in my recovery stage, when I was, it wasn't right after, it was probably seven months after my diagnosis, around the time when I was returning to work, when I was insisting I was 100% when I wasn't, I would talk in my sleep every night. And Stephen, my boyfriend, would, I didn't remember, obviously, and he would say, you're talking again in your sleep tonight. And one time I said, there's a huge carton of milk across the room. I said things like that, and I would talk in my sleep. Um, which is something I didn't do before. Uh, and I also, prior to this, I, well, when I was sick, I was grinding my teeth a lot, and I stopped doing that completely afterwards. My, my sleeping did change. Um, it has since, I've since stopped talking in my sleep. So maybe that was part of the recovery process, I don't know, um, my brain, I don't know, making sense of what had happened. Um, but yeah, my, it, that's a really interesting question, because it did, it did change. Yes. Um, and that I'm wondering if you knew ahead of time how you were going to do that, or if it unfolded as you were writing. What just speak to the process? Sure. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I uh, there are many you know answers to that question, but it was not something I had foreseen when I started writing the book. That was a long process and a difficult one. I really struggled with that because uh, you know it really isn't my story, but it's an I. It's an I there. And when I my first drafts of the book. I had actually written every part I didn't remember in third person. So I wrote it, Susanna did, Susanna did. And that was very helpful for me because I didn't feel was honest writing it in first person because I didn't remember. So I handed my draft into my editor and she read it and I had a friend read it too and both of them came back and said I don't like the third person. And I really fought them because I was, this book was very much to me, I really wanted to get it right because I didn't, I didn't experience it the first time. So it was also, you know, as a journalist, you want to get the, you want to get it right. And I thought that I, I, it's right that I don't remember. I want to say she, I don't want to say I. But my friend said to me, I cried when I read it in first person and I didn't when it was third. And I thought, 
All right, I have to go with I because you have to have the emotion, and I guess it was too distance. But what I did was I tried to keep a very kind of distance clinical third person, uh, first person, especially in the second part and the things I didn't remember. So I was very careful not to add in any kind of feelings that I might have had or conjectures about what I was feeling at that point. Like I tried to make it very straightforward that I am retelling the story from an I from an I point of view. Um, but that was very difficult. But in terms of the process of of actually writing it. So I had I got some amazing advice that I'd love to share, but I right before I started researching the book, I originally wrote an article for the Post about it. Um, and so I kind of, I could see all these kind of false memories forming, like all of a sudden I could remember the clock drawing, which was definitely, I just definitely didn't remember. So I pushed everyone away and I just, I got a journal and I started writing down everything that I, me, I, you know, could remember. And, I, and I, I kept that, and I still have that journal. And it's really important for me to kind of review it, because I talk about it so much, and I wrote about it. So some of these memories have become my own, but they're not. Um, so I, I did that, so that's my, that's kind of what I remember. And then from there, I bought a huge dry erase board. And actually, uh, uh, do you know uh, Christopher McDougall, who did Born to Run, which is an amazing book? I had talked to him briefly about his process, and he told me, do not start researching first. Start writing first. And that was amazing advice because I'm dealing with the brain and the immune system, very complicated things. And you could research it forever. It's so fascinating. And so I'm glad I started writing. But what I also did, which was another, another piece of advice that he gave me, was buy a huge dry erase board that was broken up into months. And from there, I started layering my facts. So I had the kind of the objective truth, which I felt was the medical record. So I would say lumbar puncture this day, brain biopsy this day, you know, this person came to visit. And I had that in green. And then from there, I started adding other facts in about, you know, like I'd talk to my father about his visits and what he would bring for me each morning, Starbucks coffee and a, and a yogurt. And I'd add that little fact in. And so, and then that would be in red. So that would be kind of a little more subjective, not so objective fact. And then from there, it was the doctors and nurses I talked to. And I try to just kind of piece by piece, got the EEGs, added that layer. So it was kind of like building a case. And I, I actually have, still have my, that, it, that um, dry erase board. And it was extremely helpful to see it visually because really this book only follow, I mean, I, I do talk about the recovery and that's, that's, you know, till now, but it really chronicles from February, 2009 to, you know, about June, maybe a little bit, maybe September of 2009. So it's kind of a finite period of time, so I could actually kind of map it out and see it, and that for me was extremely helpful with the writing process. You know, it's interesting hearing you because it makes me think of like being a young child and your memories. Yeah. There are memories that I hear from my family that I was too young totally. to remember, but you in a way, you reconstitute your childhood memories, and in some ways you can't tell what you actually yes. remember, what you're filling in, and that's what you did with the book in some ways. Definitely. You constituted to where I would imagine it becomes your memory now. Yes. And you can sort of let go in a way that this will stand that. Exactly, yeah, exactly, because, like, but for example, the clock. I remember it, but from a bird's eye perspective. It's not from the me perspective, it's from the kind of a person watching it. Clearly, I, I, that's not my memory. But since I've talked about it so many times and rehashed it and thought about it, it's, it's now imprinted in my memory. And it, but then there are things that I'll never get back. I, you know, I talk in the book about, I found, this is very late in the writing process. I was actually moving. Uh, for, I had to live with my mother after this, and then I moved in with my boyfriend. And I was going through my stuff, and I found a little postcard of Madame X um, for, at the Met. 
and with it was a receipt of the date that I went. And it was pro right before my seizure, right around the time of my seizure, that I had no memory of going to the Met. Zero of seeing that painting, what attracted me to that painting, why I was so, why I was enamored by that painting so much that I wanted to buy that postcard. I have nothing that can, that can kind of ground me there. I mean, I, I like the painting. It's a beautiful painting, but why about, what about that? And I'm tr I try to figure out, I mean, she looks really sick. You know, and maybe I was feeling a connection. I don't know. You know, I, 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 and I try to make sense of it. So there are some memories that I've created that are false, and there are some memories that I'll never, I'll never get back, no matter how hard I try. You know, and there's no one there to tell me how I was reacting. I, I apparently went alone, and I just have nothing placing me there. So it's kind of, you know, a combination of these things. And, and, and I, even to this day, I still have new memory feelings that come back, more of kind of feelings as opposed to, you know, episodic memories. But um, you know, I, I was walking in the street a couple of months ago and saw someone and I actually had this experience several times and was sure that they were somehow connected to my time at the hospital. But how am I supposed to know? I don't know. I, it was just a, maybe it's just a passing feeling, kind of a, a misfired deja vu feeling, you know, I don't know, but, uh, but it does, that, that does still happen. And when I, watched, when I watched the videos of me and the one of me hallucinating, only recently, and this is unfortunately not in the book, but only recently did I realize that, remember I said I was talking into the remote, to the remote control? I remembered when I was watching it for like, I watched that video unfortunately way too many times, and I realized, oh, I can hear the TV to the remote, because in, in NYU you can actually hear the TV. So that's why I have it to my ear. And I'm not talking into it. I'm listening to myself on the news. And it's a minor thing, but all of a sudden I realized, you know, it kind of came back to me. And so, so that still is happening a little bit. Yes, yes, exactly. That was a little bit saner than I thought. Yes. Great question. I didn't really get into that. So um, for me, um, it was fairly minor treatment. I had um, high dose of steroids, first intravenous steroids, and I was on prednisone um, for about a year, uh, which is an unpleasant drug. It's a miracle drug, but it's unpleasant. Um, and then I had about 20 rounds of IVIG treatment, which is intravenous immunoglobulin, and um, plasmapheresis, which kind of takes out your blood and cleans it and replaces it. Um, pretty minor stuff. Um, other people, if they don't react to first-line treatment, have to go to second-line treatment, which involves chemotherapy to suppress the immune system. And a lot of times, some people have teratomas, which I discussed a little bit before. I did not have one. About 50% of cases have teratomas, and many, if you have a teratoma, once you remove that teratoma, you tend to get better with first-line treatment. Um, but you know, in the, in the scheme of things, for again, how devastating the disease is, this, these minor treatments, say, I mean, I, you know, I'm not on anything now. Uh, you, know, it, you wouldn't call it a cure because there is a relapse rate. Uh, when I wrote the book, it was 25% relapse rate. And the new study that I just cited, now it's 19, which is like a little, you're like, okay, 19, I think I get in the teens. So you feel a little bit more comfortable. It's still, it's still scary, um, to say the least. So I wouldn't say I was cured because there's always the specter of it kind of coming back. But, um, but 19, I, I can live with 19, I think. If it comes back, does it come back the same way? Would you? There, yes, there's evidence. You know, it's, you know, again, 2007, so there's no longitudinal studies, really. But um, there's evidence that if you were sick, if you recovered very well the first time, that you have a very high percentage chance of recovering the same way if it does come back. 
So that, that is very reassuring. And, and, you know, I wouldn't wait a month. It wouldn't take me a month to get a diagnosis. You know, people wouldn't say, oh, you have schizoaffective disorder now. You know, I think it would be a very clear shot to Dr. Najjar's office and then on treatment again. Yes, that's a great question, and honestly, I think it had to happen the way it did. I, I, with the exception of, I changed his name in the book, but Dr. Bailey, the alcohol withdrawal thing, I thought, that, to me, looking back, I had a lot of anger with that, and I've grappled with it, and now I understand he's an overworked guy. He's, you know, I, I tried to see him and talk to him, and he says he sees 30 to 40 patients a day in private practice, so, you know, it's someone who has a lot on his plate, okay, but that, but the problem is with that label, Instantly, I had this kind of, oh, well, she, you know, she doesn't take care of her body, or she, you know, you know there was this kind of label on me that, that sidetracked me, actually. Um, but in terms of everything else, no, I mean, at that time, it was a rare, it was so rare. I, I mean, it did, you know, I think it just had gotten a write-up in the New England Journal of Medicine. You know, the Lancet published Dow Mouse papers, but it wasn't as widely known as it is now. So I have, I'm actually remarkably lucky that it only took a month because I know of many other cases where it, did, it took much longer than a month, so I have no, I have no feelings of, oh, they, could, they, they should have done it better. If it happened now, I, I definitely hope it happened quicker, because now the test that, uh, that it, you know, it was, you test it through a lumbar puncture. Now that test is commercially available. You don't have to wait for one man in one lab to do it, so it's much quicker. And I'm hoping, you know, with, with, with everything written about it, I mean, every journal in the world now has written about this because it has so much ramifications in rheumatology, immunology, psychiatry, neurology. So it's really, you know, people talk about it a lot. So it really concerns me when people don't know about it and if it's not on the kind of list of things that people look at, if someone comes in with first break psychosis or, you know, with kind of strange neurological symptoms that don't make sense, it should be on the list of things that are, that that people look at, um, and that's the goal, and that's been my goal um, since kind of, I, so I, just some background here too, I'm involved with a nonprofit group um, called the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance, and kind of our goal right now is to kind of spread that word in the medical community, uh, and we're actually having a, a doctor's a conference in Durham at Duke um, in three weeks, and you know, Dalmau is going to be there, Mayo Clinic is going to be there, Oxford is going to be there. It's like a very great meeting of the minds about kind of what, what is the protocol with how to treat this disease because that, that actually ranges from institution to institution and also kind of what are this warning signs that, that you can kind of disseminate to um, doctors to kind of look out for to separate it from other types of illnesses as well. Definitely, that is. That thank you for saying that. I mean, that is the goal too: is to unite these different fronts and to basically have psychiatry talking to neurology and doing and having neurologists going grand rounds, grand rounds in psychiatrists, which they probably do here, I'm assuming, but not everywhere. And you, know, and you want psychiatrists who can kind of issue up lumbar punctures and be like, you know, this might look like an autoimmune encephalitis, you know, encephalitis of some, some kind. Why don't we do a lumbar puncture, which that doesn't happen in psychiatry. So there are a lot of, 
I mean, I, I, that, that's my hope, and I, and I hope that there is more conversation among the different disciplines in, in diseases in general, not just with this one. I don't know. I don't want to pick you. <laughs> uh, I wish we were in neurology right around at this point. On my watch and on your watch, the capacity to image what part of the brain is talking to what other part of the brain and what, what it's saying and under what circumstances. Now, the immunological story is magnificent because that can get anywhere and do anything. Right. However, <clears throat> are there any neurologists here? Uh, because the neurology grand rounds imaging is just everything. Yeah. And it used to be there was x-ray, then there was CAT scanning, then there's MRI, then there's functional MRI, then there's CT scanning, mm -hmm. then there's PET scanning. You can see... Unfortunately, with the disease, only 50% of cases actually show any evidence on the scans available now. So you don't, it's actually not a scan story. Um, and, and a lot of doctors will rely solely on scans and won't pick this disease up. This, this disease actually is, is, is diagnosed via lumbar puncture. So, but, there, but sometimes there is evidence of abnormality in the scans. Um, and I think, you know, what, there's actually a study outside of WashU right now um, where they're doing functional MRI with this. And hopefully they'll find something that's, that they can, because you know, that would be so great. You wouldn't have to do a lumbar puncture every time you, you think, like, oh, hey, let's take everyone who has first break psychosis and just do lumbar punctures. It's impossible and it's scary. And a lot of people who are going through a very paranoid feeling aren't going to want to get have someone poking in the back. Like, I mean, you don't want that in, in, in your good day. You're not going to want that in your worst day. The fact that cure is even discussable. Yeah. And it has become discussable with rabies. With many things which are thought to be yeah. completely untreatable. By doing things that no one would have thought about even five years ago, it is now worth talking about. Definitely. Because the fact that your brain can go wild, we've known that for right. a long time. Traumatic brain injury and all the stuff that's coming out now, even getting hit on the head a few times mm -hmm. to make not work right. But there there's just simply has to be a benefit yes. from reporting it as well as you have. It's poetry, but you do But the, the, the neurosurgery and neurology yes. has got to be listening and paying attention. I think they are, and I think what's really exciting, what I didn't touch on really about this disease, which is what you're touching on, is the idea of we are now understanding the NMDA circuit in the brain because this is such, this antagonizes only, this actually attaches to and kind of sublimates the receptor. So you can understand, okay, the pathways of the NMDA receptor in the brain creates these types of behaviors, which look alarmingly like behaviors in schizophrenia. So now we can under, maybe hopefully understand how different types, what happens to the brain during schizophrenia in certain ways, you know? And so I think it's illuminating how the brain works, and that's a really exciting part of this disease, too. One more. So, you know, it's so hard because, you know, it, if you ask yourself, like, how, how are you different from five years ago? It's really hard to kind of pinpoint. I mean, of course, that five years ago was a very different time for me than it is now, but, you know, I can tell you kind of physically different things. I'm slower on my left side. Remember, my right side, my brain was more affected than my left side, than my right side, but I'm right-handed, and I never thought about that as much, but it, it's significant. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's my, when Dr. Najjar does my, did my neuro write-up uh, workup, uh, a couple months ago, when I had I had a, actually a vertigo scare, and he was it was fine, just vertigo. But he noticed my reaction times were very different from right to left, and that was con that concerned him. 
that's probably, you know, because of the disease. And I notice, like, my mem sometimes my memory is not fantastic. I forget names, you know, it's certain things like that. And, but it's, it's very amorphous. Maybe I just always, for I kind of always forgot names, but I never really thought about it. I mean, you know, when you're 24, how often do you kind of think, like, oh, these are my cognitive limitations? And, you know, it's, you never really sit down and assess that. But now I actually do, and I realize, okay, I'm not, you know, these are things that are lacking. And, but, you know, I'm a human, so I'm lacking, you know? So it's... So in terms of that, you know, I can tell you that. But in terms of who I like, how I, who I am, you know, I think fundamentally I'm still the same. Like I, I think that kind of messing with my receptors, like somehow magically they came back, and I think that like I still, you know, like, like mint chocolate chip ice cream and David Lynch. You know, I think like these are things that are still me. You know, are still about me. But there are other things that have changed too. Like I, I now have this interest in brain science I didn't before, and I have this understanding of how much we are a victim to our own bodies in a way that I never did before and it doesn't necessarily change the way I live my life or frighten me into this kind of neurotic sensibility but it does in kind of it does change me and and, and it's it's not a change that's that is because of the disease it's not because because the, the disease changed my brain but it's because the experience changed me and I think that that probably the experience and the experience of writing the book and the experience of meeting people who've been affected by the disease and meeting other doctors, you know, I think that has changed me more profoundly than, than the disease itself, if that, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you, Susanna. Thank you.